This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay review Belly Button by Jellyfish. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me once again, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, we have a suggestion by you this episode. Once again, you brought us the Degeneration episode a few weeks ago, and you're back with another pick of Jellyfish. When are you going to pick a band? I pick everything that's not you. That's how it works. You, you've been on an autopilot. You've been you, slacking. You get your three picks a year, and I get to pick the other uh, 49 episodes. Because mm. so, I pick the user, the listener uh, suggestions. No, so, that's not the same. That's it's, the same. it's almost the same. Jay, uh, in order to help us with this particular album, we have a special guest joining us. Um, I didn't even, you know, when we do the pre-show banter, I usually ask about pronunciation of last names. So I'm just going to wing it here because I think I know how to pronounce this. But if I pronounce this incorrectly, I apologize. We have joining us Mr. Steve Turnage. Did I get that right, Steve? You've got it right down the first time. Thank you. Excellent. Good job. I don't want to use the word expert inappropriately, but is it safe to say that you're a jellyfish expert? Uh, I think if anybody is, I'm probably one of them. Uh, I've... I did see them five times live. They did change my life significantly in my musical tastes, actually, when I first saw them. And I liked them enough that I got involved with a guy named Alan Heaton, starting up a, uh, a record label called Burning Sky Records. And we chose Jellyfish as our first tribute album. And we got 35 bands from around the world to cover both uh, Belly Button, their first album, and Spilt Milk, the second album, in a uh, compilation called Sensory Lullabies. And uh, that was pretty amazing. Also, uh, I'm reasonably good friends with most of the band. Uh, we, I had a music distribution system called WeedShare uh, in the mid-aughts, where we uh, put out a bunch of power pop and uh, Imperial Drag demo tracks along with that and got to know uh, Roger Joseph Manning Jr., the keyboard player, very well uh, at that time. And we were still uh, good friends up till now. So I guess uh, expert is acceptable in this case. I'm also a mastering engineer, so I've uh, done quite a bit along those lines. Oh, we could have used you for the, the episode that we just... That we just recorded uh, where we asked about mastering and the whole band went, I don't know. Huh. You know, well, I just actually, I have a book uh, called Desktop Mastering. It just came out in March uh, from Hal Leonard Books uh, that describes my methodologies. I've been mastering since 97. So uh, it, something's going right. And they've asked me to do a follow-up called Beyond Mastering. But that's not what this particular podcast is about. It's good to be here with you. Thank no, you No, but much. feel free to pimp your wares. We, we completely uh, support that. And I think we have, yes, you are, your bona fides stack you up as a jellyfish expert. I feel like I'm on like a, um, a news program and I'm bringing in like an expert to explain, you know, the Middle East, why there's conflict <laughs> in the Middle East. Like, I can definitely explain why there's conflict within the jellyfish camp. Yes. Oh. No. There, there really <laughs> isn't, actually. And for that matter, this is another good time for this because... Uh, a live show, live at Bogart's, of Jellyfish was just released by Omnivore 
uh, on vinyl and CD that has not been out before. And they may be following it up with a Spilt Milk live show. But the, the jellyfish, that's the thing that's most amazing about jellyfish is that their impact has been felt. Uh, this is, we're coming, 20 years past, there was a, you know, they had their two albums out. And in the years after that, there was a active internet fan base and they've continued to be active to this day. And most of the bands that you like were probably influenced by Jellyfish in one way or the other. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why I nominate them for an episode. You rock. And I'm really... glad that I'm off the hook of, uh, I always get a little bit scared when I nominate a band because then I feel like I have to be the expert on the band and I am not an expert on this band. So I'm so glad that you were able to join <laughs> us and get me off the hook. <laughs> I mean, I know, I know stuff about the band, but there's going to be a lot that I don't know and I, I don't have to look foolish now. When I first saw uh, Alan Heaton's MySpace page uh, setting up the ultimate tribute to Jellyfish, uh, I saw that there were some things in there that he could use an expert on. And I got in touch with him and it took a little while, but it ended up that we've had a great relationship and put out lots of albums as far as pimping wares. We've started with Jellyfish, but then we did a three-disc Posies tribute, 45 songs. We did a three-disc Roxy Music tribute with Early, Late, and Roxy Progeny. And we did a four-disc Squeeze tribute of the first four Squeeze albums in their entirety. A, and a Toy Love tribute, which is a New Zealand punk band. So uh, our output's been pretty healthy. And each one of the we've probably done about 160 different bands uh, playing all these things. So it's been a great pleasure and having jellyfish as our, our foundation is fully appropriate because they really everybody came to us uh you know most musicians that know jellyfish love jellyfish and they're proud to be chosen for a tribute for them so were those all bands that you and alan were just huge fans of and that's why you chose them yeah excellent that's the best way to go yeah absolutely we're it, it's labors of love completely it's not it, it doesn't make money Alan Fortunate <laughs> put it. So, you know, uh, I got it. And he also filled all the uh, all the bands through. So I just got the cream of the crop, fortunately. And so I'm infinitely grateful to Alan Heaton for uh, his great work in Burning Sky Records. Well, I think so, I was going to say, I think now would be a good time for us to um, start on the history of the band. And uh, it's good we have an expert because then we can just shoot a bunch of questions at you when we're not sure. Because... Typically, our history of the band segment is riddled with uh, misinformation and falsehoods, thanks to the internet. As typical, yeah. As typical. So, history of the band for Jellyfish. History of the band. Formed in San Francisco, California in 1989 after drummer Andy Sturmer, and I think that's how you pronounce it, a multi-instrumentalist. Roger Joseph Manning Jr. left the band Beatnik Beach. Beatnik or, Beach was actually wonderful. Yeah. Uh, at that point, uh, Manning had they recruited Jason Hot Faulkner, who Manning had previously met after his band Three O'Clock broke up, the and three. the Three O'Clock, mm-hmm. and um, that's when they were recording. They were, I believe, they were starting to record Belly Button. It wasn't. He wasn't brought in. Prior to that, was they were in the studio? Uh, it or was built in time, for, for sure, as, as I understand it. Now, obviously, some of this is going to be hearsay, mm-hmm. but uh, 
Roger Manning's brother, Chris Manning, came in and uh, played bass on tour. But as I understand it in the studio, Jason Faulkner actually covered many of the bass uh, tracks on the album. Along wow. with uh, a favorite of Jason, myself, uh, Steve McDonald recorded bass on three of the tracks. And Steve, of course, is from Red Cross. Absolutely. And um, Jay is... Like Jellyfish, Jay introduced me to Red Cross last year with the Phase Shifter album, which I am a huge fan of. So, Belly Button gets released in August of 1990 on Charisma Records, and the band tours. After touring, Chris Manning leaves the band, Jason Faulkner leaves the band, and Tim Smith is recruited to play bass for the next release, which is Spilt Milk. And joining the band in the studio is John Bryan, adding some guitars. And that album is released in February of 1993. Uh, The band breaks up the following year. Is that correct? And touring with Eric Dover. This is the other thing. Eric Dover on tour with them on guitar. Eric's been pretty amazing. He had his own band called Sextus. He was a singer for Alice Cooper for a while. He was the singer for Slash's Snake Pit for a while after that and uh, then Roger Manning and Eric Dover went on to form Imperial Drag Tim Smith went on to be Shell Crow's bass player oh so did Eric Dover ever sing for the band oh yes he, he well he they can one of the main things about Jellyfish if we go back to Jellyfish is uh, one of their main attributes is their vocal harmonies and the vocal stacks and in order to be able to pull this off live, which that was one of the big discussions on the internet groups of, did they fake it? And they didn't. I saw them live several times, and they have amazing pitch, and they have to be really good. So Eric Dover sang all the time, just not lead. Okay. And Tim Smith as well, and Jason and Chris Manning as well. I mean, everybody sang these multi-part harmonies that were just, you know, Beach Boy brilliant. Because my history was all confused. I I was a fan of this record, but Tim and I often talk about that, uh, you know, at this time the internet was not prevalent. So finding information about bands was was not easy. So you kind of pieced together things that you could find here and there. So it was my understanding that, or whatever, my, my, you know, version of, of what was going on, I thought he replaced Andy Sturmer at some point because I, I became aware of him when he, um, join uh, Slash's band, and Eric. then I was a fan of, of Imperial Drag. And I, right. I remember thinking, like, why does this guy have Jellyfish in his credits? And I right. just maybe I just assumed because he was the singer in those two bands that he must have replaced Andy Sturmer at some point. But Not now that I'm piecing together history, now, Andy, Andy Sturmer, the other aspect of Jellyfish that was very unique at the time and really jaw dropping to see live is that Andy Sturmer, the drummer, was also the lead vocalist. And he was a stand-up drummer at the front of the stage. Wow. And, wow. Which was it, truly amazing to see. Uh, and and it, it gives me shills even now to, to remember how cool that was. And so what happened was uh, Eric Dover actually was brought in to replace Jason Faulkner. Okay. And Tim Smith was brought in to replace Chris Manning, who is Roger Joseph Manning Jr.'s brother. And it was because Jason Faulkner wanted to go and make records. He he didn't feel like he was being able 
to contribute is what I read, and that, but that Chris Manning basically didn't want to tour. Like he didn't like the touring. That's what aspect I understand. Of it. It, it, with with uh, Jason, he had, you know, he his creative juices were just fountaining, and uh, they weren't necessarily, you know, completely encouraged within the Jellyfish camp. So that's where post Jellyfish, he went off and did the Grays, which was supposed to be a super group as well. Which was uh, which is an amazing album as well, and then post that he went off and did several solo albums that are just excellent. J- Jason Faulkner's solo album work is just is so good, and uh, he deserves a lot more credit than he's found. I think. Yeah, Jay, I think you've turned me on to a couple of his solo albums over the yeah, years. Yeah, I have a, I have a couple of them, and we re- we reviewed the Grays album, <clears throat> which I think. What le- is what led us to this record, and we've reviewed a couple other bands. Uh, Mink comes to mind, a, la- yeah. a local Ohio band that um, I think we compared a lot to Jellyfish. So that's kind of how we worked our way back to actually going back to the source of of where all this comes from. Yeah. yeah well, when you talk about the source, actually, Jellyfish was the ultimate um, recatalyst in a way, reuser of what has gone before you take queen you take the beach boys you take the beatles you take so many of the classic you know 70s and 60s 70s and 80s motifs and what makes jellyfish special is that they boiled this together into a sort of like a philosopher's stone uh and achieved really uh, equal to or beyond what they were uh, what they ate basically to get there and the the tragic aspect of this which we touched a a bit before the show is that the time they were ready to come out is when unfortunately my hometown seattle uh the grunge movement uh came on in uh in spades incredibly artistic you know it's dr seuss top hats and uh paisley shirts uh (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> necessarily cohesive to that time and it's a real tragedy actually because that um their their history proves out what a great band they have been it's good that you mentioned the look of the band because um that's going to come up in a minute but uh that was our history of the band pretty much i think we covered everything there as far as jellyfish is concerned want to remind everybody that uh, if you would like to support the podcast via donation or purchasing a T-shirt, we will make you a sponsor of the history of the band. Now, we got to get to Facebook feedback. It's where we um, read the comments from the preview post that we put up for our shows so that people can tell us what they think, and then we can read it on the uh, show. We had a couple of comments on Jellyfish. A lot of people liked it, that we were going to do this particular album and we put up the video for the king is half undressed which is Mm -hmm. i think probably the best known video for jellyfish um and then so we got a couple comments uh sean michael foster said fantastic record spilt milk is even better uh frank marvel said exquisite song craft to the point that it's almost too perfect like a modern day version of the zombies that was interesting and then this was the big one uh, John Share, old friend of the show, John Share said, "When I first heard this, I recognized the voice since I had the Beatnik Beach record. 
I was into some of the college art rock power pop stuff of this type, at least partially due to MTV's 120 Minutes. But as soon as I started seeing the band videos, I was turned off. Hated the image and visual style. Too much gimmick. I never got into the band because of it, though I may have liked them. I think fairly placed in the same category as the likes of Sloan, Matthew Sweet, Michael Penn, House of Freaks, The Posies, Cave Dogs, The Greys, but I don't think the test of time has shown it uh, ultimately as strong as those artists. Mm. Interesting perspective <laughs> from old friend of the show, John Sher, who we have had well, disagreements about albums in the past. So That perspective, uh, again, if you uh, look at it, is 20 years on mm-hmm. as far as the look of the band because uh, where they were you know, 20 years ago uh, I guess that's that's a it's a sort of a good question of would it have been different if we didn't have all of the other things that we have today that basically might have come from you know their use you know bubble machine and all of that I don't, I don't know it's a good comment honest he, I, what I would recommend is that he shut his eyes and take a listen yeah uh, well <laughs> you kind of have the benefit now of never having to see bands because you can just go on Spotify and all you're going to see is a little album cover and you can listen to, you know, literally thousands of bands and tens of thousands of albums and not be, not have your, uh, you know, opinion persuaded based on how the band looks. You're just, you're judging it based on the music. It's like a internet version of that show, The Voice, where you're, you don't know what the person looks like, so it doesn't matter and it's not going to shape your opinion. That actually brings up a pet peeve for me of these days, and, and actually a, a turning point that I'm seeing in music in general right now that may be of interest, and it actually is important about this particular album, is, you know how at, at one point in the 50s, there was a lot of singles, right? The 45, mm-hmm. 7-inch 45, and then it shifted into LPs and album lengths and album-oriented rock and then, due to lack of bandwidth and lack of storage space in the digital age, uh, it disintegrated into singles again. And these days, because I'm a mastering engineer, and one of the most important stages of mastering for me is sequencing, where you put the songs together in a specific order and specific timing between the songs, so it becomes the big song, a real experience itself. and. Uh, Belly Button is truly mastered wonderfully in this way. Those songs should be heard in that order at those spacings. So what I've been starting to do is put up um, certain clients of mine, their entire songs on SoundCloud, their entire albums on SoundCloud, so that you can listen to it all the way through, and then a Buy Now, Buy Here button sends it to their website or whatever. And I'm finding that... You know, in the days of vinyl, of the record, when you put it on, that was a an experience. You'd put it on, you'd go and you'd do something for 20 minutes. You'd come back, you'd flip the album, you'd do something for 20 minutes. These days, with Spotify and iTunes, etc., it's like, okay, don't like that, don't like that, don't like that, click. Okay, we'll let that play for a little bit. Then click. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's becoming, I think it's a weakness. And I think it's going to be dead really soon. Dead skin and going back to the full album format uh that's my opinion and i'm starting to get excited about it well i you know we jay and i have talked about the how the advent of the cd changed 
people's ability to make records. I think one of the biggest problems was you started seeing bands making albums with like 15 and 17 songs on them. Mm, and Phil, really, you, you had yeah. five good songs. And that era sort of ushered in the skip, skip, yeah. skip. And it was the 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 bloating of the album that sort of killed the delivery device for a, for a long time. And I think you're right. I think it is going back to where people are crafting better albums. But, like, we bemoan the fact that, like, you know, in the 70s, you would get a nine or an eight song album. And it was That's like, it, it was, yeah, it would just give you enough so that you were like, I need to listen to that again right now. Right. But you can't mm-hmm. listen to, like, Down on the Upside by Soundgarden and go, I need to hear those 17 songs again right now or 16 songs or whatever it is. Because it's right. just, it's so much, and you're like, my ears are tired now. I just listened yeah. to that much Chris Cornell screaming. And the mastering aspects are, are that way, too. And a lot of this, you know, in gen- to generalize, uh, comes from the A&R people at the major labels at the time. Because mm-hmm. they had, they said, okay, here's your hit, and now let's put in the filler. Uh, that wasn't, nec- that was sort of counter to what the, the new indie uh, has in their artistic integrity. Essentially, so the artistic integrity was uh, diminished a bit by the the label machine process, which has killed so many bands, really. Um, and and I think that we might be past that because of the the decay of the music industry. It, it makes a rise of the artist, and uh, as long as we can support them to you know. Not necessarily to make them rich, but to uh, encourage them to continue to make their work. You know, that's great. Well, the uh, that brings up a good uh, a good point for me is that this album came out on a label called Charisma, which I had never heard of before. And, oh, they've uh, been a long, long time, actually. Like early yeah. Genesis out on Charisma, for instance? Yeah, I'm looking at that now. and it, um, They I were think bought by a major and then released. Like the label got cut. They were on like was like purchased or distributed by a major label for a while and then basically they cut the label that label loose which is how jellyfish ended up because they were on i think it was atlantic owned charisma for a while in the 80s and then like by 89 they were like shuffling their labels around and cut charisma loose and then charisma became an indie again so Hmm. what what else was on charisma that's at the time that this came out like Uh, just give me a you have to go to their wikipedia page it's I'm a, sort of it, looking at it. It's all older bands. Yeah, exactly. It was a special label. And that's the thing to realize about Jellyfish is that the members of Jellyfish are absolutely academics on earlier music styles. I've been to Roger Manning's house and studio, and his studio has analog synthesizers stacked. He also is in a band called the Moog Cookbook, for instance, and that'll tell you something. He's also an amazing sideman for many, many bands that we know of now. But his record collection, uh, he has them around basically every wall of his house as a uh, sort of a bench seat. And uh, he's got so many uh, albums, and he has these collections of like 35 millimeter 70s TV shows, uh, the original like Brady Bunches and all that kind of stuff. And. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the whole pop world, he and his girlfriend were uh, absolutely expert 
at, and it was fabulous to. And this all comes out in his music as well. I got to backtrack. I said uh, Atlantic. It was in '83. Charisma was acquired by Virgin Records, right? And it operated until '86 when Virgin was uh, absorbed EMI, and then they uh, a new version of Charisma with no connection to the original label operated between '90 90 and '92. But so the, is it safe? Go ahead. I was gonna say, but as far as other bands that were from this time, I don't, I don't really see any. Like Julian Lennon was he, was he in the early nineties? I think I think it was more of an eighties yeah. artist. But so the, yeah. the the point here though that's really interesting is that the albums that Roger and Andy enjoyed, a lot of them came out on Charisma at the time because when we were vinyl junkies. You know, the label was all, you know, Gentle Giant and all these things. They had their very specific labels, and you open it up and say, yeah, this is a Virgin Records, those types of things. The the label art in the middle of the record was something that is almost at the trademark of quality and had, tells you something. If it's on this, this label, it's this thing. And I think that's a, a big reason why they might have gone towards Charisma as an opportunity. And you know who this is, brings up? The producer of this, there's there's several hit people. Do you, can you read who the producer is of this particular? Oh yeah, for this album, Jack Al- Joseph Puig no, or Jack Joseph Puig is Puig. one. But Albie Galutin, okay, was the executive producer of this album. And you know what else Albie Galutin had produced? Uh, Saturday Night Fever. That's the one. Yeah, I just and, Wikipedia and that super not, fast. You. <laughs> It, I don't know if you looked it up but or if you knew, but Albie Galutin, uh, this is, Jellyfish did seek out uh, the the help that they, the top musicians and producers in the worlds that they came from. And it was pretty interesting that, uh, and you can actually hear the production values from Saturday Night Fever and, in Belly Button. And J.J. Plague uh, also produced... The Grays, and uh, several other things that were are just you know everything he touches is golden as well for for the way he works in Oceanway Studios, where they had tons of outboard gear. Uh, it's it's an amazing seeing pictures of where this thing was recorded is uh, is very interesting from an engineering standpoint. Well, this is a good point for us to actually segue into specifically talking about the album and jay since you brought this album that means it's on my shoulders to lead off this section with don't screw it up with my review of the record i i I don't think i can screw this one up um if anything you weren't familiar with the band at all i had never listened to jellyfish prior to two weeks ago um i obviously knew the grace i listened to jason faulkner solo albums i listened to imperial drag I basically hit everything around this band, but never actually focused on the target. Um, mm-hmm. So when I was listening to it, it actually felt really familiar because I had heard the voices before and the music sounded familiar. Um, but in listening to this, it's so much more than what a lot of those bands are. I almost don't feel qualified at times to talk about what's going on because it's so beyond my scope of like musical knowledge. I hear things and I'm like, I don't even know what time signature they're playing in. There's clearly like so many vocals going on that it's in like heading into like a queen territory. And then there's like these just insane 
melodies and, and crossing mm-hmm. with these guitar and piano parts and, and keyboard parts and strings. And it's just like, I, I would listen to it over and over again. And every time I would hear something different, like I'm just going to listen to what's going on in my right ear this time. And I just <laughs> listen to what's, what's going on in the right channel. And um, I mean, it's, it's an amazing record. There's no bones about it. And I, I said to Steve before we started recording, I'm going to listen to Spilt Milk tomorrow because I'm that interested to hear what the next record sounds like. And they it's, are musicians, musicians. And when you do listen to Spilt Milk, your jaw will drop. So make sure you get some sort of a cushion there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely more, I guess, progressive or it uh, pushes the boundaries a little further, I think. I don't know. That's the way I, I think of that album. That was some of the, yeah, and this is what they ate in order to put this out. You know, their their history was, they're so experienced listeners. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like Porcupine Tree, for instance, Stephen Wilson, if you don't, I'd recommend finding out about him. He also came from a listening uh, environment, and it informed all of his music, but that's a different story. But I would like to plug Porcupine Tree there, because they're my favorite band right now. They've been around for 20 years as well. I have so. heard of them, actually. Somebody at my office said, you should listen to this band, Porcupine Tree, like two weeks ago or three weeks ago. And I was like, I have never heard of this band. And, I've seen uh, them 15 times around the world. So Wow. So amazing. a couple of observations um, listening to this. I mean, uh, you mentioned the Beatles. You mentioned Queen. Um, Beach Boys. Very Beach Boys. Yeah. Cheap Trick is another one that's yeah, clearly in the, in the lineage. Big Star. By the way, Roger's a sideman for Cheap Trick, and Roger's a sideman for Beck, and Roger's a sideman for Glenn Campbell, and Roger's a sideman. Roger and Andy were sidemen for Ringo Starr, for instance. Oh. A very that's that's a short list. So uh, they're busy. They're not uh, uh, seriously uh, and and really really talented. That's the the, the key is that uh, these guys have it going on basically with their musical skills well i think the thing that the first thing that wows you is how they're able to maintain a consistent sound but able to create a unique to take something from the past and incorporate it into that unique sound that they're able to carry you know like track six all i want is everything it has Mm -hmm. almost like a country punk beat uh, that's underneath the whole song but yet you have um, lyrics that are almost like funny. He starts out the first line of the song is, ever since I was a twinkle in my father's pants, they told mm-hmm. me I could have it all and more when given a chance. Ever since I was a twinkle in my father's pants, they told me I could have it all and more when given chance. We'll get you anything that That's I would not expect that out of a serious <laughs> kind of rock and roll band, you know, it, that that sort of sense of humor. And then the second 
line, he they actually referenced the Beatles. I think I'd like to play guitar and be a Beatle and be so swell, which is cool because, I mean, obviously they're drawing from the Beatles. You can hear it. There, there are touches on um, the track three, The King is Half Undressed. That's almost the drum beat from Tomorrow Never Knows. Right. Well, see, I think you're going to find something really interesting when you get your hands on sensory lullabies as well. I think I'd like to play guitar and be a Beatle and be so swell. And every show I would just dedicate this song to you. And I would envy all my fans. While I bitch about the price of fame. Everything that you've been saying, it's funny, is that the descriptions of the songs are what we've got in our All I Want Is Everything. It's sort of like a country punk song in a lot of ways. And mm-hmm. the first it has song, like a Johnny Cash rhythm. Yeah. yeah have, uh, Jay, have you heard Sensory Lullabies yet? I have not. Uh, okay. You've got even more benefit to, to coming your way. Um, <laughs> but if we want to start the, the, the first track, which is the man I used to be the man I used to be is really sad yeah and really deep it's an interesting tra- opener yeah sure. yeah and th- what it's about is you know a man who is disenfranchised from his kid and is very sorry to see that and the fascinating thing about the version on sensory lullabies is a band from Austin called Ameritrash uh, covered that particular song and it's a lounge singer piano guy with a great guitar but he had just gone through a situation where he lost his kid and you can hear it in <clears throat> in the vocal the emotion that's there is just so deep and true and so the songwriting really even beyond the execution of the songs themselves the songwriting is phenomenal mm-hmm. uh, all layers including including the lyrical and the way that the lyrics and the music complement each other you know what's interesting about this band for me going back and listening to it is i'm always fascinated by bands that um they're almost academic and what you know how they approach music in terms of uh not only a, a, you know their ability to play but you know these guys know pop music um mm-hmm. and in every possible way this is you know pop songwriting yet they didn't have pop success so I'm always like fascinated, especially as we do this show and look at bands from the '90s, and you know, the ones we have in the focus on usually are ones that did not have success, and sort of starting to break down like, okay, why didn't this work? Why didn't it break through? Why didn't one of these songs become a huge hit? And like, it, you know, if we go track by track here, like track two, that is why. Hmm. It's a great melody, you know. It's it's beautiful, but it's one of those melodies where. I don't think people can sing it. So if you imagine like listening to the, this in your car and that chorus comes on, no, nobody, normal people can't sing that. Well, I, <laughs> oh, that yeah. And also that was one of the ones that had a video on MTV. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That is oh, did, was... oh, did it? Mm-hmm. Interesting. 
And uh, it, it, well, I was just going to say, it's just one of those things where I think, from a musician standpoint, you listen to it, you're like, God, that's gorgeous. That's so, so well crafted and so clever. And but as a just a normal person, I'm you know thinking about, okay, I'm riding my car and that song comes on. And I try to sing to it. I can't sing that chorus. There's too many notes in there, and like I'm going to sound foolish doing it. It's just one of those things, like uh, you know, those mechanics that that's that's what pop song pop hit songs end up being right it's the ones that in the car i can sing along to and i think i sound good and they're rememberable Well, I kind of feel that way about track nine, uh, Baby's Coming Back. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is, that's super poppy. That actually reminds me of like, I don't know why, but it reminded me of like a montage in like a, a romantic Bear. comedy or like a Farrelly <laughs> Brothers movie. Like a guy's yeah. like getting up in the morning and he's like, it's all poppy. And yeah. he's like, I'm going to pick up my girlfriend at the airport. And then something bad happens. Like, And the video looks like Scooby-Doo, actually. There's an animated video to this where it's a big baby going and basically breaking down a, a city in, in oh, right. Scooby video, really. And I'm sure you can find these on, on YouTube. You know, and it's That's so funny because I haven't, I mean, I probably haven't seen that since it came out. And when I... I haven't listened to this album probably in, you know, I would say five to ten years. And going back and listening to it, that was the vi- the, you know, the, the Scooby Doo sort of animation, Hanna Barbera sort of vision yeah. visual came in my head as I was listening to it, and I couldn't figure out why. <laughs> and it was be probably fun. being imprinted by that that video. Right so now that you're describing it, I do remember. Else to be debated. And if you say that 
that brings I up think... a, another point of <clears throat> of why jellyfish is coming back now too is omnivore records just uh maybe six months ago they're they're a new label and they're made up of old ex-label heads basically that know how to like clear rights but they have taste and so they're starting to put out vinyl and the like. They just released vinyl only, I think, of the original heavy-duty vinyl of uh, green and blue vinyl of Belly Button and Spilt Milk about uh, six months ago. And that hadn't been available for a long time, and the Jellyfish Hordes reveled and were extremely thrilled by this. And the same with the new Live at Bogarts that they're bringing out. Um, so they really... Uh, I think it's their time now, even when it wasn't 20 years ago. Yeah, it's kind of, um, I think we, we may have touched on it. There was, you know, the early 90s, there was a couple different, like music was going to change. I think we all can agree that something was going to happen. And there's a couple different ways it could have went. I think this band is one of the possible directions um, that we could have gone from the, you know, sort of over, overindulgent uh, 80s hair metal bad r&b sort of direction that we were in and uh you know it, it this happened at the same time that the grunge stuff happened and the two yeah. couldn't mix and i think in previous episodes we had talked about a lot of people thought you know mother love bone maybe was the band that was going to bridge us from uh you know where we were in the 80s and the, the rock star thing into something a little bit different and um you know a different sound for the 90s and that didn't happen either and sort of what did happen Unfortunately, while I think a lot of things good came out of it, one of the things it did bring was this very sort of exclusionary concept where, yeah. you know, it killed everything that wasn't it <laughs> and sort well, of took this, over. And a band this like happened, this got this happened in the 70s as well when punk came out. Is yeah. punk basically killed progressive and dinosaur rock, right? There, yeah. there was there was certainly dinosaurs to kill, but. There was also some great music that suffered horribly when punk came out that mm-hmm. later you know got their gloss back but uh, the, the the grunge thing did the same thing of, of wiping it all away to start from scratch and the internet world what we have gotten here it used to be that there were three channels there was networks there was radio and there were a few channels of radio and there wasn't a whole lot of i mean even pre-mtv right you that there was a very either you were in this camp or that camp you were in disco sucks or something else you know these different rock things it was these days however the pastiche you can go onto youtube and you don't just have a single you know thing kids these days are uh, able to go from one to the other to the other of uh, styles of music that in the day, these people would have rumbles. You know, you you don't mm-hmm. see the you know, the mods and the rockers hanging out together. But now it's complete pastiche, and I think the 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 quality is coming to the top. And I think this the millennial generation are going to have uh, raw material that no previous generation has had in order to you know really rise above. Well, we're not fighting for. Um, I think we got in this last into this subject the last episode a little bit we're not fighting for um physical space in record stores anymore mm. in terms of you know if i'm running a small record store even a big one at some point i'm i'm limited to what i can have in there right and i'm always making the decision of you know what's going to sell and what's going to sell now and what you right. know 
I got to make money. Well, now with the internet, that's not an issue anymore. So I think people like uh, for a long time, you know, anybody over the age of basically 30 is ignored in terms of marketing music. You know, it's like we, they don't really care. They're, they're interested in selling music to people between the ages of, you know, whatever, 14 and 25. And then after that, they don't care about you anymore. And um, this is why now, are, are out of business too, right? Yeah. yeah. And now that we have um, more direct access, I think, to labels, like I'm looking at Omnivore now and, and what they're doing and the artists they have associated with them, there are enough people out there to buy these records. Now, you know, they're not going to be, you know, probably multimillionaires from releasing this stuff, but there's probably enough to make a business case here if you think about globally that you can find, you know, enough people between the ages of probably 30 and, you know, 50 that will be interested in, you know, this kind of music and not care that it's 20 years old because that's another all thing you have we've to do is, All you have to do is sell out what you press too. Exactly. Yeah, sell for yeah. profit per record and if you sell them all, you're good. <laughs> and most like, for instance, these jellyfish pieces, they have been uh, selling out completely because the, the, the limited runs of the, like the colored vinyl and all of that, you know, they make maybe, you know, 4,000 or something and, or 10,000. And right, I'm not sure exactly those numbers, but um, right away they were sold out and they're going to come out again with the regular black vinyl afterwards as far as just to continue to feed the market but there is enough latent you know jellyfish love for instance uh to to pull i i hope at some point enough people understand that that's what where sensory lullabies was supposed to be too um and uh, discover that at some point mm -hmm. well, revisiting this for me i i was struck by just how straight up this was for some reason in my memory maybe because I'm more familiar with Spilt Milk or that was the album I listened to more I always thought of it as being more I guess grounded in progressive music mm -hmm. and it's this album really isn't um, obviously power. there's yeah. yeah it's very much power pop and it, it reminded me more of bands like Crowded House or Squeeze or mm -hmm. XTC as opposed to even Queen you know um, which were obviously Jellyfish as well yeah, and obviously there's those elements in there, but um, I was really, um, I think, going back and listening now, maybe because I've, I've played a little bit more music and listened to more music in the last 20 years. Uh, you know, I sort of see it that way, which was which was pretty interesting. Um, how, what I can't not wonder as I listen to this, how did they play this live? You said you saw them several times. Five how much times. of this were they able to replicate live and... How much did they change? Amazingly, they, they did. Their live shows were, again, jaw-dropping. It was uh, some of the best shows I've ever seen. And I've mm -hmm. seen lots of shows. Mm -hmm. uh, the first time I saw them was at a, a little club that's no longer there. It's a gym now called The Backstage in Ballard, which is a small town in Seattle. And uh, they pretty small stage. There was a white picket fence at the front of the stage. There were balloons up. They had the similar uh, dressing as they had on the cover of Belly Button. Jason Faulkner was at one end. Chris Manning was at the other. Jason uh, was stage, stage left. Then Roger with his keyboard and occasional guitar. Then the drum kit. And then Chris Manning right in front of where I was. 
And it was just uh, stunning, really. And you'll hear the live at Bogarts, if you ever get a chance to, if that comes out uh, popularly, which it's being delivered to people right now, um, you'll see and hear what their live shows sounded like. And it uh, very, very worthy. It was a, it was something not to be missed. Is that the Bogarts in Cincinnati? No. Okay. Oh. oh, okay. So like, what, what about like, um, you know, there's a lot of elements like bells and timpani drums and, you know, there's just a lot of, the is that all done on keyboards or how do no, they, no, how do they do that line? production didn't really uh, come through all that much, you know, as far as, but the people who came into the studio to play those were the best studio musicians that they could find right. at right. the time, actually looking into more depth of that. But no, the, the shows were more rocking, little okay. stripped down, but uh, especially the early show, these ones with Jason Faulkner, actually on guitar, just it, it almost makes you cry the quality that's and you can find bootlegs of them playing these uh, on, especially on YouTube there's a bunch of, of uh, videos of them at this era I'm glad you brought him up because I kind of feel like not that he's under, underappreciated but he's kind of the secret weapon in a lot of ways because there are so many parts where he throws in a little lick that's counter hmm. to the vocal melody or his soloing is yeah. so intricate and so interesting in comparison to, you know, everything is very pristine and perfect. And he'll throw in this sort of like really dirty um, yeah. guitar solo. I'm thinking of like um, she still loves him. Mm-hmm. It's got a really, it's got a kind of a cool effect on it too. I don't know if you know what what he was using in particular for his effects or his a rig at that time, but it's it kind of sounds different than the other guitar parts. Track 10 on Calling Sarah, there's like a double like uh, guitar part too, where it sounds like it's harmonizing at first, and then he kind of goes off and he, and he basically starts playing two different solos at the same time. I, I kind of feel like I wish there was more of him doing that. I'd really That's why I'm really interested in hearing the live yeah. stuff. We kind of yeah, opens he's, up. He's one of the musical, un, underappreciated musical geniuses of our time, really. I'd say Jason is right up there. And as as history looks back, just like we are, you know, 
at the time, jellyfish didn't really get their due, but now we're sort of giving it to them, and they're getting it more and more. I think Jason's going to be in that same type of, like Frank Zappa right now is basically our classical musician. These are Beethoven, for instance, and maybe Todd Rundgren or whatever. We have a, a number of people that will be known for the ages, and I think Jason Faulkner is going to be one of those people for sure. Yeah, I think that was one of the things that I've um, revisiting this noticed was that the guitar is very understated on the record, which is, you know, for me, I'm a big guitar guy. So it's sort of, uh, it was interesting that uh, I like this so much when it came out, considering that, you know, the guitar isn't necessarily a primary instrument on it. You know, it's definitely there, but it's not like there's, you know, overdriven guitar on every song. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on with, you know, mixing acoustics in with electrics or not having guitar at all for a part and then bringing it in or having it be more lead focused and not necessarily core focused. And um, I was uh, kind of surprised at how restrained it was. And I would agree with Tim. You know, I'm, I'm curious to hear the live stuff because I could have used a little bit more, I think, on here. They definitely kind of, uh, and that kind of gets me to, you know, what happened with the, with them? I think, was it Jason Faulkner was the, one of the first ones to leave? I mean, what happened that, they did have some buzz and some things going on. How did they only make it one, really one record as this lineup, you know? I think the creative differences is a pretty uh, safe way to say it. I, I do have I do have some other information, but not that we could really put out here. Uh, <laughs> we'll save that yeah. to after the show. Oh, okay. That's a, uh, but you know, I think that he really was feeling held back and, uh, as I understand it, he did a lot of the, the bass parts as well. And if you listen to each one of these, the instruments in, you know, almost in uh, isolation, you really start to hear the, the cleverness that's mm -hmm. there. Because he's, he's, I believe, wasn't he a bass player in the Grays? I think he covered bass and John, uh, they might have switched off. I think there was uh, yeah, quite a bit of switching, off. but yeah. yeah do you, but, so do you know from track to track, uh, who was playing bass? Because, like, for example, the bass on that is why is amazing. I mean, it's doing all these little melody runs, like playing opposite the vocal, and it's just it's absolutely spectacular. But I don't know if that's Steve McDonald or if that's Jason Faulkner or who's doing that. Right, right. Uh, it'll be interesting to see. I, I can get the the record actually and see if it is credited down that much. That actually brings up yet another aspect of jellyfish is that there was a not lame uh, box set in 2002 put out a four disc box set called fan club from the rare to the unreleased and back again jellyfish fan club and uh, it's a, a box set that can uh, collect rare b-sides and lost tracks plus over three hours of unreleased recordings including never before heard demos and live cuts from both worldwide tours. In addition, an extensive full-color booklet features unseen photos, a discography, and track-by-track -track commentary from the band themselves. And so that's pretty amazing in itself, and it sold out. And it has lots of information in here. And it was from Fan Club that we made the uh, sensory lullabies that we knew the unreleased and uh, live-only tracks, because uh, we did all of those. And so that's where a bunch of this information comes from. That's crazy that they put out two official albums, but they had four albums worth of 
unreleased and B-side and live <laughs> stuff. Yeah. It's basically double the output. I'm trying to think. That I, 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 I kind of feel like I... It's so overwhelming to listen to so much of this record that I, I don't even have a lot of like cohesive thoughts on it. It's just sort of like, uh, yeah, it's awesome. That's it. I now have the uh, the vinyl in my hand that just came out on Omnivore and on blue vinyl. And as far as the credits go, it says Andy Sturmer, most of the singing, drums, some guitar and keyboards. Roger Manning, lots of piano, harpsichord and singing. Jason Faulkner. Most of the guitars and basses, and some background singing. Chris Manning, band Witch Doctor, and Mime. Yeah, <laughs> I, read this, I read those credits yesterday. I was laughing. They're very funny, and that was one that stood out to me. It was uh, okay. So apparently, he didn't play anything on the record. And on Steve <laughs> McDonald played bass, breathed fire, and spit blood. It's what they said. So that that sounds uh, quite a bit Kiss-like. Absolutely. That's interesting because I don't think of Kiss as being a uh, a reference point for this band. Actually, here we go. It says that uh, Steve Steve McDonald and Wikipedia played on "All I Want Is Everything." Now she knows she's wrong, and Baby's coming back. So it was uh, Faulkner playing bass on that is why. Right. So that, that, that is... makes sense. Okay. So has there been any? Have they ever considered um, since the breakup of getting back together and doing anything at least? Now, Manning or challenge uh, where Andy really didn't enjoy being a rock star, and uh, their their tours had some challenges in that way. And what Andy did afterwards was he did Saturday morning cartoon soundtracks, and went over to Japan and produced some like Puffy Amiyumi and some things in that way. And he's just plenty happy not being in the public eye anymore. Uh, so that's been one of the biggest, uh, you know situations of will jellyfish ever get back together again and it's almost to the level of beetles you know will they get back together again mm-hmm. so it's unlikely to the extreme that's i would say that there's from what i know there's no chance that those four artists will get back or uh whatever structure they would have because it would be roger and andy that would be required to have a jellyfish re- reunion sure and the closest thing to a Jellyfish reunions we're getting are these uh, albums made again, which I'm pretty dang happy about. Maybe if Coachella threw enough money at them, they might consider <laughs> a, a one-off show. That's what seems to work to get bands back together. <laughs> it, it, uh, we can only hope. Yeah. Or Sonosphere. Yeah. Or, yeah, Sonosphere. Or one of the... <laughs> Before we leave the record, can you... Uh, I'm, I'm horrible with lyrics, and sort of uh-huh. this is my first time... Uh, really listening to the lyrics on the record. Can, do you know anything about the Bed Springs Kiss? What Bed that Springs song Kiss. is about? Oh well, actually, what's really interesting is that our version of Bed, Bed Spring Kiss, the guy who did it, um, played it for his mom, and his mom was very, very upset. Um, it seems to be about you know heroin. Yeah. Secret Counting the words 
Jimmy, his, I can actually read it real quick here. Jimmy, his secret's out, the one he locked inside and denied every word about. He's guilty, so his story claims. Twisting in his seat, he repeats alone his name. Counting the words between his every line, searching miles and miles to define just what it all means. Jimmy, as quiet as a church mouse, painted every graphic scene, but with few details. His accomplice had made sure of this when she sealed it with a bedspring kiss. And when her time had come to go, Jimmy washed all the bloodstains from her clothes. But with a needle in his vein, it became too hard to explain just what it all means. Counting the words between his every line, searching miles and miles to define just what it all means. Killing his time, a monkey in his vein, he knew he could not explain just what it all means, just what it all means. So yeah, that's that's not light. No, and what's funny is that the musically it's it's very um, you know I guess it's the f- most uh, what you call it? I mean it's a, basically like a samba or something you know it's like musically as distant yeah. as any song is on the record and it's probably the least from a music standpoint that I would be attracted to but there's just that darkness of the lyric kind of pulls you in and as I'm listening to it you know obviously I've not I, I've never taken heroin but. <laughs> As I'm listening to it, listening to the lyric and the music, I'm I'm thinking to myself, from what I've heard other people describe, this is probably what it feels like. Like there's just <laughs> this like numbness. Like imagine being like laying on a bed, like you know, staring into blankness with a warm blanket around you. <laughs> you know, and the, this is probably what you would hear. Especially is that the center of heroin is pain because mm-hmm. it's all about the withdrawal. You know, it, mm-hmm. it calls you in as the cessation of pain. But before too long, if you don't have it, you start to hurt. Mm-hmm. And I think the bedspring idea is, it sounds like not a very well uh, appointed home mm-hmm. to have bed springs out and you're just laying there and not really able to move. Uh, I think that has a, a lot to do with the, the idea. The version we have on sensory lullabies uh, sounds a lot like Neil Sadaka and it's really fascinating. Huh. To, 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 the, the contrast comparison. Jimmy, as quiet as a church mouse, painted every graphic scene, but with few details. His accomplice have made sure of this when she sealed it with a bedspring kiss and when a time had come to go jimmy washed all of the bloodstains from her clothes and with the needle in his face he knew he could not explain just what it all I'm very proud of that album, actually. And as an extension of our uh, real respect for this album. Yeah, well, I mean, I think this is a musician's band, right? I mean, they, they maybe yeah. had dreams of being pop, you know, music 
darlings or you know having big hits but in the end of the day i mean this is a band that i think their fan base is mostly made of musicians and engineers and you know uh, producers and what have you people who appreciate what they're doing and uh that dichotomy of uh, expert musicianship combined with you know pop songwriting sensibility so yeah, it makes sense a tribute album makes sense <laughs> It's like uh, XTC as well, I think, would be similar to that. And also Gentle Giant, another uh, prog band from the 70s. Definitely musician bands and, and their, the depth of, of work that they've done and extremely uh, influential to musicians that's come after. That's a good uh, point for us to mention. At the, usually when we're wrapping up our, our review, we like to talk about bands that people might be more familiar with that would lead them down the path to, to listening to this band. So a, a couple bands that I thought of that people are probably more familiar with that if you like those bands, you should check out Jellyfish. One would be Matthew Sweet. Matthew Sweet had a bunch of huge hits in the 90s. He hasn't been as popular in the last decade, but I think a lot of people, especially our age, know Matthew Sweet. And I think if you like him, this would be a band you'd want to check out, especially some of his... You know, albums like um, In Reverse is a good comparison in terms of his production he does on that record. I think another band is uh, Fountains of Wayne is mm-hmm. a good entry point for this band. Again, more more radio friendly in terms of their singles, but definitely have an appreciation of the power pop. Um, and then for older bands, um, the Raspberries and Badfinger were two bands. Yeah. They, they did the Badfinger songs live, actually. There were several things that they put in between in their live shows. They would... Uh, they do like Jet, and they do uh, some some Badfinger songs, and there was it was very cool. And those are going to show up on this live at Bogarts as well. By the way, what about you, Jay? Any uh, entry points for you? Uh, they all tend to be older bands, you know, that you mentioned. Um, you know, the the XTC kind of thing, Crowded House, Neil Finn, Trick, all that stuff. I'm trying to. I, I struggle with newer bands. You know, there's just and Red uh, Cross. Really, when I when I was looking yeah. for. I went yeah. into a record store asking in the late 90s, uh, saying, so what is out now that is like Jellyfish? And they that's how I found out about Red Cross, actually. So they pointed me to that. Yeah. I would, and they I have would a new album coming that. out. Did you know that, Jay? I did not know that. Yes. Coming um, soon but, this August. But in terms of new bands, I, I struggle because there's not, uh, there's just a, really, in terms of popular music, there seems to be a complete, not a complete, there's a void in musicianship <laughs> when it comes to pop uh, rock. It seems to be very, very simple. Or if it's not, it, it gets heavier. And this band doesn't live in that area. You know, they're sort of firmly in between. And there's not a lot of bands that, at least currently, that live in that space. So it's really hard for, for newer bands to come up with any comparisons for me. I think, I think right. Fountains of Wayne and Weezer are probably the two that come closest, and they're still not even that close. No, no, that's yeah, that's a to- on a different spectrum, yeah. definitely. So, I think that covers our uh, our discussion of Jellyfish's belly button. We've hit the hour mark, which is when I usually like to uh, try to wrap this up. We need to thank our special guest for joining us and providing us with a ton of information. Steve, thanks for coming on. And um, anytime, glad to help. My pleasure. I, Jay and I are both interested and are looking forward to checking out 
the Jellyfish Tribute album, Sensory Overload, which is available. Oh, oh, sensory Lullabies from Burning Sensory Sky Lullabies. Records. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, Burning Sky Records. Is that burningskyrecords.com? It is. Excellent. And everybody should definitely check out the Live at Bogarts. And you can, of course, check out this album by going to Spotify, which we suggest you do and giving it a listen. You can also check out The Spilt Milk. I think both the albums are on there. And then they also released some, re-released the albums with bonus tracks a couple years ago. So, which I think have some of those live Badfinger and Paul McCartney covers that you were talking about. On CD. Yes. Oh, no, uh, do not put a space in the band name. <laughs> if you do that on Spotify, you'll end up with the wrong band. Yes, Jellyfish, Jellyfish all no one space. Word. Yes. All right, gentlemen, all right. we're going to wrap this one up. Uh, thanks, thanks for everybody. Having... Thank you for being thanks. on, Steve. appreciate it. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. When these memories fade In my ripe old age Please remember my Want to leave feedback? Join the conversation at digmeoutpodcast.com for links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed. While you're there, support the podcast by visiting our donation and merchandise pages. And thanks for listening.